This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Behind the Curtain by Francis Stevens. The story runs 25 minutes. It's read by Mary Jo Escano, and we will be discussing it afterward. Behind the Curtain by Francis Stevens. Read and recorded by Mary Jo Escano. It was after nine o'clock when the bell rang, and descending to the dimly lighted hall, I opened the front door, at first on the chain, to be sure of my visitor, seeing, as I had hoped, the face of our friend, Ralph Quintin. I took off the chain, and he entered with a blast of sharp November air for company. I had to throw my weight upon the door to close it against the wind. As he removed his hat and cloak, he laughed humoredly. You're very cautious, Santalos. I thought you were about to demand a password before admitting me. It is well to be cautious, I retorted. This house stands somewhat alone, and thieves are everywhere. It would require a thief of considerable muscle to make off with some of your treasures. That stone tomb thing, for instance, what do you call it? The Benihasan sarcophagus. Yes, but what of the gilded inner case, and what of the woman it contains? A thief of judgment and intelligence might covet that treasure and strive to deprive me of it. Don't you agree? He only laughed again and counterfeited a shudder. The woman? <laughs> Don't remind me that such a brown and shriveled mummy horror was ever a woman. But she was. Doubtless, in her day, my poor princess of Nam was soft, appealing, a creature of red, moist lips and eyes like stars in the black Egyptian sky. The songstress of the house, she was called. Ere she became Tanazem, the Osirian. But I keep you standing here in the cold hall. Come upstairs with me. Did I tell you that Beatrice is not here tonight? No. His intonation expressed surprise and frank disappointment. Then, I can't say goodbye to her? Didn't you receive my note? I'm to take Sanderson's place as manager of the sales department in Chicago, and I'm off tomorrow morning. Congratulations. Yes, we had your note, but Beatrice was given an opportunity to join some friends in a southern trip. The notice was short, but of late she had not been so well and I urge her to go. This November air is cruelly damp and bitter. What was it? A yachting cruise? A long cruise. She left this afternoon. I have been sitting in her boudoir, Quentin, thinking of her, and I'll tell you about it there, if you don't mind. Wherever you like, he conceded, though in a tone of some surprise. I suppose he had not credited me with so much sentiment. I thought it odd that I should wish to share it with another, even so good a friend as he. You must find it fearfully lonesome here without me, he continued. A trifle. We were ascending the dark stairs now. After tonight, however, 
things will be quite different. Do you know that I have sold the house? No. Why are you full of astonishments, old chap? Found a better place with more space for your tear jars and tombstones? He meant, I assumed, a witty reference to my collection of Coptic and Egyptian treasures, well and dearly bought, but so much trash to a man of Quentin's youth and temperament. I opened the door of my wife's boudoir, and it was pleasant to pass into such rosy light and warmth out of the stern, dark cold of the hall. Yet it was an old house, full of unexpected drafts. Even here, there was a draft so strong that a heavy velour curtain at the far side of the room continually rippled and billowed out like a loose, rose-colored sail, never far enough, though, to show what was behind it. My friend settled himself on the frail little chair that stood before my wife's dressing table. It was the kind of chair that women love and most men loathe, but Quentin, for all his weight and stature, had a touch of the feminine about him, or perhaps of the feline. Like a cat, he moved delicately. He was blonde and tall, with fine regular features, a ready laugh, and the clean charm of youth about him, also its occasional blundering candor. As I looked at him sitting there, graceful, at ease, I wished that his mind might have shared the lightness of his body. It could have understood me so much better. I have indeed found a place for my collections, I observed, seating myself nearby. In fact, with a single exception, the Tanism sarcophagus, the entire lot is going to the dealers. Seeing his expression of astonished disbelief, I continued, The truth is, my dear Quentin, that I have been guilty of gross injustice to our Beatrice. I have been too good a collector and too neglectful a husband. My tear jars and tombstones, in fact, have enjoyed an attention that might better have been elsewhere bestowed. Yes, Beatrice has left me alone, but the instant that some few last affairs are settled, I intend rejoining her, and you yourself are leaving. At least, none of us three will be left to miss the other's friendship. You're quite surprising tonight, Santalos, but by Jove, I'm not sorry to hear any of it. It's not my place to criticize, and B's not the sort to complain. But living here in this lonely old barn of a house, doing all her own work, practically deserted by her friends, must have been... Hard. Very hard. I interrupted him softly. For one so young and lovely as our Beatrice, but if I had been blind, at least the awakening has come. You should have seen her face when she heard the news. It was wonderful. We were standing, just she and I, in the midst of my tear jars and tombstones. My chamber of horrors, she named it. You are so apt at amusing phrases, both of you. We stood beside the great stone sarcophagus from the necropolis of Beni Hassan. Across the trestles beneath it lay the gilded inner case wherein Tanazim, the Assyrian, had slept out so many centuries. You know its appearance, a thing of beauty, gleaming lines, like the quaint smiling image of a golden woman. Then I lifted the lid and showed Beatrice that the one-time songstress, 
the handmaiden of Amen slept there no more, and the case was empty. You know, too, that Beatrice never liked my princess. For a jest, she used to declare that she was jealous. Jealous of a woman, dead, and ugly so many thousand years. Or, but that was only in anger. That I had bought Tanazim with what would have given her, Beatrice, all the pleasure she lacked in life. Oh, she was not too patient to reproach me, Quentin, but only in anger and hot blood. So I showed her the empty case, and I said, Beloved wife, never again need you be jealous of Tanazim. All that is in this room, save her and her belongings, I have sold. But her I could not bear to sell. That which I love, no man else shall share or own. So I have destroyed her. I have rent her body to brown aromatic shreds. I have burned her. It is as if she had never been. And now, dearest of the dear, you shall take for your own all the care, all the keeping that heretofore I have lavished upon the princess of Nam. Beatrice turned from the empty case as if she could scarcely believe her hearing. But when she saw by the look in my eyes that I meant exactly what I said, neither more or less, you should have seen her face, my dear Quentin. You should have seen her face. I can't imagine, he laughed rather shortly. For some reason, my guest seemed increasingly ill at ease and glanced continually about the little rosin-white room. That was the one luxurious, thoroughly feminine corner. That and the cold, dark room behind the curtain, in what he had justly called my barn of a house. Santalos, he continued abruptly, and I thought rather rudely. You should have a portrait done as you look tonight. You might have posed for one of those stern old hidalgos of... Which painter was it who did so many Spanish dons and donnesses? You perhaps mean Velasquez, I answered with mild courtesy, though secretly, and as always, his crude personalities displeased me. My father, you may recall, was of Cordova and southern Spain, but must you go so soon? First, drink one glass with me to our missing Beatrice. See how I was warming my blood against the wind that blows in, even here. The wine is a Montelado, some that was sent me by a friend of my father's, from the very vineyards where the grapes were grown and pressed, and for many years it has ripened since it came here. Before she went, Beatrice drank of it from one of these same glasses, true wine of Mantilla. See how it lives, like fire and ember with a glimmer of blood behind it. I held high the decanter, and the light gleamed through it upon his face. Amontillado, isn't that a kind of sherry? I'm no connoisseur of wines, as you know, but... Amontillado. For a moment, he studied the wine I had given him, liquid flame in the crystal glass. Then his face cleared. I remember the association now. The cask of Amontillado. Ever read the story? I seem to recall it dimly. Horrible. Fascinating sort of a yarn. A fellow takes his trustful friend down into the cellars to sample some wine, traps him, and walls him up in the niche. Buries him alive, you understand? Read it when I was a youngster. 
and it made a deep impression. Partly, I think, because I couldn't for the life of me comprehend a nature, even an Italian nature, desiring so horrible a form of vengeance. You're half Latin yourself, Centaurus. Can you elucidate? I doubt if you would ever understand. I responded slowly, wondering how even Quentin could be so crude, so tactless. Such a revenge might have its merits, since the offender would be a long time dying, but merely to kill seems to me so pitifully inadequate. Now I, if I were driven to revenge, should never be contented by killing. I should wish to follow. What? Beyond the grave? I laughed. <laughs> Why not? Wouldn't that be the very apotheosis of hatred? I'm trying to interpret the Latin nature, as you asked me to do. Confound you. For an instant, I thought you were serious. <laughs> the way you said it made me actually shiver. Yes, I observed. Or perhaps it was the draft. See, Quentin, how that curtain billows out. His eyes followed my glance. Continually, the heavy, rose-colored curtain that was hung before the door of my wife's bedroom bulged outward, shook and quivered like a bellying sail, as draperies will with the wind behind them. His eyes strayed from the curtain, met mine, and fell again to the wine in his glass. Suddenly he drained it, not as would a man who was a judge of wines, but hastily, indifferently, without thought for its flavor or bouquet. I raised my glass in the toast he had forgotten. To our Beatrice, I said, and drained mine also, though with more appreciation. To Beatrice, of course. He looked at the bottom of his empty glass, then before I could offer to refill it, rose from his chair. I must go, old man. When you write to be, tell her I'm sorry to have missed her. Before she could receive a letter from me, I shall be with her, I hope. How cold the house is tonight, and the wind breathes everywhere. See how the curtain blows, Quentin. So it does. He set his glass on the tray beside the decanter. Upon first entering the room, he had been smiling, but now his straight, fine brows were drawn in a perpetual troubled frown. His eyes looked here and there, and would never meet mine, which were steady. There's a wind, he added, that blows along this wall. Curious, one can't notice any draft there either, but it must blow there, and of course, the curtain billows out. Yes, I said, of course it billows out. Or is there another door behind that curtain? His careful ignorance of what any fool might infer from mere appearance brought an involuntary smile to my lips. Nevertheless, I answered him. Yes, of course there is a door, an open door. His frown deepened. My true and simple replies appeared to cause him a certain irritation. As I feel now, I added, even to cross a room would be an effort. I am tired and weak tonight. As Beatrice once said, my strength beside yours is as a child's to that of a grown man. Won't you close that door for me, dear friend? Why, yes, I will. I didn't know you were ill. If that's the case, you shouldn't be alone in this empty house. Shall I stay with you for a while? 
As he spoke, he walked across the room. His hand was on the curtain, but before it could be drawn aside, my voice checked him. Quentin, I said, are even you quite strong enough to close that door? Looking back at me, chin on shoulder, his face appeared scarcely familiar. So drawn was it in lines of bewilderment and half-suspicion. What do you mean? You are very odd tonight. Is the door so heavy then? What door is it? I made no reply. As if against their owner's will, his eyes fled from mine. He turned and hastily pushed aside the heavy drapery. Behind it, my wife's bedroom lay dark and cold, with windows open to the invading winds. And direct in the doorway, uncovered, stood an ancient gilded coffin case. It was the golden casket of Tanizem, but its occupant was more beautiful than the poor shriveled songstress of Nam. Bound across her bosom were the strange, quaint jewels which had been found in the sarcophagus, Tanizem's amulets, heads of Hathor and Horus, the sacred eye, the Uraeus, even the heavy, dull green scarab, the amulet for purity of heart. There they rested upon the bosom of her who had been mistress of my house, now Beatrice the Assyrian. Beneath them, her white, stiff body was enwrapped in the same crackling, dry, brown linen bands, impregnated with the gums and resins of embalmers dead these many thousand years, which had been about the body of Tanizem. Above the white translucence of her brow appeared the winged discs, emblem of Ra, the twining golden bodies of its supporting Uriai. Its cobras of Egypt were lost in the dusk of her hair, whose soft fineness yet lived would live so much longer than the flesh of any of us three. Yes, I had kept my word and given to Beatrice all that had been Tanizem's, even to the sarcophagus itself, for in my will it was written that she be placed in it for final burial. Like the fool he was, Quentin stood there, staring at the unclosed, frozen eyes of my Beatrice, and his, stood till that which had been in the wine began to make itself felt. He faced me then, but with so absurd and childish a look of surprise that, despite the courtesy due a guest, I laughed and laughed. I too felt warning throes, but to me the pain was no more than a gauge, a measure of his suffering, a stimulus to point the phrases in which I told him all I knew and had guessed of him and Beatrice and thus drive home the jest. But I had never thought that a man of Quentin's youth and strength could die so easily. Beatrice, frail though she was, had taken longer to die. He could not even cross the room to stop my laughter, but at the very first step stumbled, fell, and in a very little while lay at the foot of the gilded case. After all, he was not so strong as I. Beatrice had seen. Her still, 
cold eyes saw all, how he lay there, his fine, lithe body contorted, worthless for any use till its substance should have been cast again in the melting pot of dissolution, while I, who had drunk of the same draught, suffered the same pangs, yet stood and found breath for mockery. So I poured myself another glass of that good Cordovan wine, and I raised it to both of them, and drained it, laughing. Quentin, I cried, you ask what door, though you thought was that you had passed that way before, and feared that I guessed your knowledge. But there are doors, and doors, dear charming friend, and one that is heavier than any other. Close it if you can. Close it now in my face, who otherwise will follow, even whither you have gone. The heavy, heavy door of the Osiris, keeper of the house of death. Thus I dreamed of doing and speaking. It was so vivid, the dream, that awakening in the darkness of my room, I could scarcely believe that it had been other than reality. True, I lived, while in my dream I had shared the avenging poison. Yet my veins were still hot with the keen passion of triumph, and my eyes filled with the vision of Beatrice, dead, dead in Tanizim's casket. Unreasonably frightened, I sprang from bed, flung on the dressing gown, and hurried out. Down the hallway I sped, swiftly and silently, at the end of it unlocked heavy doors with a tremulous hand. Switch on lights, lights, and more lights, till the great room of my collection was ablaze with them, and as my treasure sprang into view, I sighed, like a man reaching home from a perilous journey. The dream was a lie. There, Fronting me stood the heavy, empty sarcophagus. There on the trestles, before it lay the gilded case, a thing of beautiful, gleaming lines, like the smiling image of a golden woman. I stole across the room and softly, very softly, lifted the upper half of the beautiful lid, peering within. The dream indeed was a lie. Happy as a comforted child, I went to my room again. Across the hall, the door of my wife's boudoir stood partly open. In the room beyond, a faint light was burning. And I could see the rose-colored curtain sway slightly to a draft from some open window. Yesterday, she had come to me and asked for her freedom. I had refused, knowing to whom she would turn and hating him for his youth and his crudeness and his secret scorn of me. But had I done well? There were children, those two, and despite my dream, I was certain that their foolish, youthful ideals had kept them from actual sin against my honor. But what if, time passing, there might change? Or, Quentin gone, my lovely Beatrice might favor another, young as he, and not so scrupulous. Everyone, they say, has a streak of incipient madness. I recalled the frenzied act to which my dream jealousy had driven me. 
Perhaps it was a warning. The dream. What if my father's jealous blood should someday betray me? Drive me to the insane destruction of her I held most dear and sacred. I shuddered, then smiled at the swaying curtain. Beatrice was too beautiful for safety. She should have her freedom. Let her mate with Ralph Quentin, or whom she would. Tanazem must rest secure in her gilded house of death. My brown, perfect, shriveled princess of the Nile. Destroyed, rent to brown, aromatic shreds. Burned, destroyed, and her beautiful coffin case desecrated, as I had seen it in my vision. Again, I shuddered, smiled and shook my head sadly at the swaying rosy curtains. You are too beautiful, Beatrice, I said, and my father was a Spaniard. She'll have your freedom. I entered my room and lay down to sleep again, at peace and content. The dream, thank God, was a lie. End of Behind the Curtain Read and recorded by Mary Jo Escano Hi, I'm Jesse. Hi, I'm Paul. Hi, I'm Misa. And today we're going to talk about uh, Behind the Curtain by Francis Stevens. Uh, I'm reading it out of the famous Fantastic Mysteries January 1940 publication. I spent way too many hours trying to get the All Story Weekly September 21st, 1918 version where it was first published. Uh, way too many hours. I mean, I got sidetracked a few times and found lots of other good stuff. But I always like to try and get it out of the original, see if there's something there that is not in the later publication. Um, and I think everybody heard the uh, audiobook version, right? Yes. By, read by, by Mary, Mary Jo Escano, yes. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much, Mary Jo. She's uh, feeling sick, so she's not joining us today. Um, I also got some notes from Connor, uh, who's changed his name on Twitter to Connor the Librarian. He spelled it even more Conan-like, so that was pretty <laughs> funny. Um, which I will read now, because I didn't want to read them in case they overlapped with my ideas. Um, so here's what he says about this story we've just heard. Uh, number one, the story is almost like an inversion of the cask of Amontillado, which is referenced explicitly. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when I found that part of the story, I'm like, whoa, she just went from slightly sort of Poe-esque to actual Poe reference. Um, he says, in the cask of Amontillado, Montresor is unhinged and seeking revenge against his enemy Fortunato for a reason that we never discover. Uh, yeah, that is, I think, important in that story, whereas here I think it's very explicit. Well, semi-explicit as to why the revenge is happening. He says, I suspect Montresor is totally paranoid and the slight that Fortunato committed against him is, is entirely in his head. I would tend to agree, not entirely in his head, but I would say it's like um, uh, it was a slight, but probably not a malicious one. You guys remember this story at all, Casca Montiato? Yes. I, I didn't read it. You've never read it? No. 
Oh my god. I should have. I should have. Oh, tell me how it works. Haven't you done it like on Reading Short and Deep or something by now, Jesse? Uh, we have done it on Reading Short and Deep, but I, I, I it's a story I think about a lot because it's so cool. And um in fact there's a story recently I found out something about by Poe uh that you all I'm probably are aware of if you're not actually read it it's called the purloined letter you know this story mm-hmm. i i know it as a concept i don't think i've actually read the actual story but i know the concept of the purloined letter right. as you know, me too hiding something in plain sight yeah, so mm-hmm. it's yeah it's hiding something in plain sight and it's it's also stars c Auguste dupin who is the first uh sort of modern well he's the first detective in fiction basically the only precursor to uh him is uh, a character out of Voltaire uh, whose name is Zadig, who basically is very observant, solves very mundane crimes like the Queen's basset hound went missing. (laughs) 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 It's it's a comedy piece and very funny. Um, But uh, C. Auguste Dupin is the origin of Sherlock Holmes. In fact, in the first Sherlock Holmes story, he's explicitly mentioned in the same way that that uh, Francis Stevens explicitly calls out Poe in this, uh, which is very interesting. But um, I found out something very interesting about that story uh, where this letter goes missing and he's commissioned by a royal person in France to find a letter that has been concealed from her, um, even though many people have gone in, broken into this guy's house and tried to get the letter back. Um but that's not important for the story I'm telling you now, which is at the end of it, there's a couple of lines in, uh, I guess, Latin and then an explicit reference to a story from ancient Greece. And I've read I've read the story of uh, the purloined letter. But like most people, <laughs> like what you guys probably have heard about it. Um, this is never mentioned, the, the last little couple of lines, and they're very important to the story because they refer to the content of the letter, which is never talked about else in the story. It's just we know it's about blackmail. Um, but I, I tweeted about this because uh, I read it in a comic and they, the person who wrote the comic adaptation was talking about what those last two lines mean. And it was really cool because it's. Again, Poe is so twisted that people don't know how twisted he is. And uh, it basically it refers to um, an ancient Greek uh, king, I think it's Greek, who uh, he punished somebody for some slight. And the punishment was to feed the child to the parent. Ooh. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it, it infers uh, we are to infer that the letter is of that <laughs> nature Ooh. in the Poe story. So you can see why they would want to get it back. <laughs> you don't want evidence of uh, you having got your revenge in such a manner. Um, now, in terms of the uh, cask of Amontillado, um, everybody sort of knows the general outline. There's these two guys. Montresor and Fortunato, and Fortunato's name is Lucky. Ha ha ha. He is not lucky at all because <laughs> he has this friend Montresor whose, you know, family code is, uh, don't tread on me, basically. Um, his, his, um, sigil 
on his family's house symbol is a a foot stamping on a snake with the snake biting the foot. Mm. Um, and it's, you know, sort of coded. So he takes this guy down into the basement of his house on a festival day, so a carnival day. So everybody's dressed in masks, right? Um, and kills him uh, by bricking him up in the basement of his house. Uh, he had carefully sent the servants away. And um, that's basically the end of the story, except to me, it's not. The most important thing to me is the way the story is framed. Um, in the Casco of Amontillado, the way the story is framed is, uh, you who know me so well, It's that's one of the first lines in the story, um, let me tell you this story. And he tells the story of him killing uh, Fortunato. And then at the end, we get a, a sort of a return back to that frame. And he says, it has been 50 years since those events. And to me, this is incredibly important because if it happened 50 years ago and he was an adult when he did this horrible deed, he is at least in his 70s, perhaps in his 80s, perhaps Mm -hmm. in his 90s. And the only reason you would confess to a murder crime is because you're not going to go to jail, a.k.a. he's confessing to his confessor. And thus, he gets to go to heaven. Oh, yeah. So uh, that's why there's a little twist in the end. This is an unrepentant, evil fuck who has murdered a, an acquaintance, perhaps even family, gotten away with it for 50 years, and now gets to go to heaven. Uh, Bad deal, right? So... Poe is very um, revengey. Revengey. <laughs> you you yeah. do not want to make enemies with Poe. Now, Frances Stevens is a different kind of person. She, uh, uh, there's a really good article online. I think Terrence E. Hanley has the blog, uh, a blog about this, uh, blog post about this story, and um, he does a bunch of others. I'm pretty sure I got that name right. Terrence E. Hanley, and he he did did the math on this, and he figured, you know, since everybody who uh, reads SF uh, knows that the uh, the golden age is twelve, <laughs> he did the math, and he found out that uh, as is right, uh, approximately the right time that um, there was a new edition of Poe that came out uh, when she was twelve years old. And this is the same time period where you see H.G. Wells is flourishing, the 1890s. So she's reading H.G. Wells, which we see in other longer stuff of hers. And we see Poe in this story. And I don't just see the one that's mentioned, the Cask of Amontillado. I see a number of things in this story, a, a number of Poe stories. Um, so... The, that's uh, the first couple of points that Connor made, and I've talked a lot. What what did you guys think of this? I um the I I I, I know you re- you listened to it a bunch of times. I listened to it a couple of times and read it once. And uh, after the first time I read it, every other time that I listened to it, it was a whole other story. Like exactly. <laughs> it's exactly different. And the first time I read it, I'm like, oh, this is interesting. I, I don't yeah. know where it's going. 
And and then you look at it again. And you're like, whoa, yeah. Because every single line is like yes. saying something else. It's incredibly interesting how much work each little thing does. Yeah. Given how short it is. It's it's uh, 23 minutes to read. I think it's seven pages long. Yeah, it's 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 but, it's, it's densely short in yeah, you know, it's idea matrix. It, I, I mean, the first, it, the first it, time it, I read the, the, the first time I read it, it uh, I, I was following along, and then suddenly, dream. Okay, that's fine. And yeah. then I read uh-huh. it again and start seeing more of the smaller, more intricate layers. Yeah. No, I didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't. I, uh, there, there is a. There is a blog. There is a blog. I won't mention because it's the blog of a publishing house that is uh, run by terrible people who felt cheated and thought it should be more Lovecraft-like. Castalia House, I think, yes, is the one I, you, I looked yes, at Castal- as you were yes, Castal- mentioning. Castalia House, yes, run, run, run by Castilla. Yes, run by Theodore Beale and uh, his uh, cretinous crew. Yeah, that's the first. If you type in this story and look yeah, sort of. I, for reviews, that's the first thing when that comes up. Which really disappointed. Like, really? Dis- I mean, I mean, it made me feel disappointed. There's not that many out there. Well, yeah, that that that, uh, that there's not a lot of analysis of the story, and the top analysis is from there. And they they wanted something more Lovecrafty. They want they 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 clearly felt cheated by by the dream and by. Basically saying, nope, we're not. No, Beatrice is not dead. Not dead. This oh, is not going to be a horrible what? thing. Is she? Uh, she's as far as I'm concerned, she's Schrodinger's Beatrice. I'm, that's a, that's, that's I, brilliant. Also, times I've a good read way of putting it. Yeah. Is she dead or isn't she dead? I don't know. I don't know. I'm pretty sure she's not dead, but um, it. What's interesting is it has a frame, but it's a back frame. Right. Not a front frame. So there isn't like uh, I was at a dinner party and this is what my guests told me. Right. And then that's basically the turn of the screw. It's front framed and it's a very it's about five hours. So that's a long dinner party. Right. One guy talking Um, here. It's uh, it was after nine o'clock when the bell rang and, and descending to the dimly lighted hall. I opened the front door at first on the chain to be sure of my visitor. So that is actually the opening, but the ending is the dream. Thank God was a lie. But, so yeah, it's back framed. It is. We but don't know that it's a dream at the start. We don't. But also, he he says, um, I I was thinking, I was just trying to think. Well, what was the dream? Was the dream that he killed her, or was the dream that he killed himself with them? Because Both, I think. Uh, yeah. No, but so cause at one point he says, true, I live while in my dream I shared this uh, avenging poison. Yet my veins were still hot with the keen po- passion of triumph and mm. my eyes filled with the vision of Beatrice, dead, dead. Like there were things in there that made me think, uh, may, you know, uh, really questioning whether mm-hmm. he did or not still. And I think that the reason you're feeling that is I, in my thesis is that this is an actual dream she had. I know that seems unlikely. Oh, you think uh, Francis? Yes. Francis? Uh, Not Francis. Francis Stevens, I I believe, had this dream. Now, mm-hmm. it's very hard to prove such things. Um, with Lovecraft stories, he uh, we have letters that often say, you know, I had this dream. Um, 
I I wrote it down and then I fin- finished it off and polished it up. And, you know, but the thing is, is it's hard to imagine that. But sometimes the details in my dreams can be as as detailed as this without being as long. Right. Um, and the reason I think that's true, I, I mean, I've been working on this thesis for a long time. Basically, I think that dreams and and creative writing are basically the same thing. It's just that with creative writing, you can have multiple passes over it. Mm-hmm. Um, you can go back to it again and say, okay, well, this isn't working. But I think that's the power of dreams. And that's why this story seems this way. But more importantly, even if that's not the case, that the story wasn't constructed based upon a dream, that's actually how the narrator tells the story. Yeah. If you look at the end, he's like, oh, it was just a dream. And uh, I don't know. I'm sure this has happened to you because it's happened to me. You may not remember it very well because dreams are very, very, very slippery things. But uh, you wake up from a dream worried that something in the dream is reality. All the time. And then you go, then you go check on it, right? Oh, it, it, and it, then you are relieved that it was not what you feared. Like mm-hmm. I've, I've had dreams about me neglecting pets. And then sure. Looking up, a, and, 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 then, and then for... And then for like a minute, it's like, oh my God, what what do I do? Like, oh wait, I don't have a cat. It takes me a while <laughs> for me to get out of the. Well, dream. not anymore. Not after it died because you neglected it so much, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so, so yeah, so that that power that dreams have to make you worry about things that are patently untrue, and until your brain gets rearranged, you're still mm-hmm. in that post-dream state. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes it, I'm like. I don't know if something really happened or if it was a dream. Like, it takes a long time to undo. Absolutely. Um, now, uh, so that, 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 that dives right back into the whole plot of the story about what what is actually real and what he actually has only been dreaming about. But, uh, but the, I mean, he has, I mean, she has one sentence here which kind of tells her that I'm good goes to mental illness and says everyone they say has a streak of incipient madness i recall mm-hmm. the frenzied act to which my dream jealousy had driven me so she's saying that that he it's inside of him that it, it it's a that's basically oh, yeah. even if she hasn't done it even if he's only dreamed it that the potentiality is oh, for sure. yeah for sure beatrice wants a divorce yeah beatrice wants and to be he afraid. wants her to stay, and more importantly, he, our hero, uh, how's his name pronounced? Uh, Santalos. Santalos, right? Which I looked up, and doesn't seem to be a real name, but Sant- Santalo is a real thing. But um, I think I think he was uh, he. I think she was going for uh, that sort of <clears throat> Montresor and uh, Fortunato sort of. Yeah, that's just a sort of Italian made, sort of thing, yeah. She's made mm-hmm. him uh, Spanish background. I think this is probably set in the States. Um, it's not super clear. It could be like Edgar Allan Poe's uh, The Fall of the House of Usher, which is sort of set in the mid-Atlantic <laughs> in a non-existent place, right? Because it's, it's, not, it's not really the United States, and it's not really the UK. It's just somewhere in between. <sighs> in, in any case, um, this guy... Santalos has a 
a mummy in his house. His house is full of antiquities. And um, the uh, one of the s- things I do with students when I normally have students is uh, we read stories like this and then we write them, you know, uh, based write stories based on vocabulary words that stand out. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that. Um, but I also, it's really weird because I had a dream, which I want to read to you uh, a while ago, June 2nd. So, you know, that's my birthday. Was it? Wow. Yep. Happy belated well, birthday. Oh, thanks. On uh, at 3 a.m. on your birthday. At 3 a.m. on your birthday this year, I had a very long dream. Uh-huh. And it. It is before I I had read most of this story, but it's very interesting. So I'm going to read it to you. I think it's fun. Dreamt I traveled to a small island nation, a tourist destination, and took the usual tourist trap tour with a semi-stranger. He lured me there like Harley Warren. This is a character from uh, Lovecraft's The Statement of Randolph Carter. Um, he lured me there... Like Harley Warren, with hints and half-promises about some semi-history, some semi-mythology of that island nation. A Twitter acquaintance, I was his Randolph Carter, his audience and student. We toured the caves with others, but as a cert- at a certain passage broke with the group and wound down tunnels of, an, of the unknown path. This is actually very similar to uh, one of H.P. Lovecraft's very first stories, uh, where they uh, main characters in a bunch of underground he's in big mammoth cave i think it it is and gets lost um without light in any case uh, uh but at a certain passage broke with a group and wound down tunnels of the un, uh, of the known path there he pointed out subtle signs no local guide would mention or notice a glyph here a scratch there and eventually he showed me the wall which concealed the culminating theory or so he said. I feared my Carter might be his Fortunato, <laughs> and said so. But his knowing laugh reassured and also frightened me. He asked my help in rolling the wall a large round rock aside, and I did. Now, Misa, if you have not read the uh, story called The Cask of Amontillado, it's famous for its ending uh, right before he does that confession, it's been 50 years since these events, he bricks up his enemy in a wall in his basement. So he's I, I got by, that from this story. Right. And step by step, he puts the bricks up and he's he's very evil about it. Uh, the guy says, this is a joke, surely. And he says, no joke. And he keeps bricking. <laughs> and then he gets he gets near the top and the guy sort of stops and he's like, oh, maybe he passed out. So he gets a stick and sort of pokes him and and, he's, ah! and he so keeps breaking up because he wants oh. to experience the horror, right? <laughs> yeah, it's, so. it's deliberative cruelty. Oh, it's he's he's oh. a little fuck. I feared my Carter might be his Fortunato and said so, but his knowing laugh reassured and also frightened me. He asked my help in rolling a, a rolling the wall, a large round rock aside, and I did. And with my small extra strength added to his, the wall moved. We passed into a, the passage beyond and found evidence of the island's rumors about a great power once visiting, but somehow sparing them the devastation of, a, of similar remote island nations to be literally true. 
For beyond that wall, we found a small group of skeletons seated round in a ring, each a cup in their bony hands. Each cup contained a reddish residue. And as I uh, pawed and sniffed at the bottle uh, between them, my semi-acquaintance explained the scene to me. They'd crashed their ship upon this island's rocky shores, he said, after being wrecked upon them by a swirling tempest. Notice that at the beginning of the story, there's a wind so strong it keeps the door from closing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's important, I think. But surviving and being provisioned, their leader, a ship's surgeon, told the poxy crew they could expect uh, a rescue and relief. But this had been a ruse, for the surgeon somehow knew that his European crew carried a disease too deadly to be treated on the uh, on the isolated natives' island nation. And so instead he'd planned a party, where in truth he drugged their wine and collapsed the cave wall behind which lay this sordid scene. Uh, you can see, like, I'm actually sort of doing poetic sh- stuff, writing this down. I was, this is, yeah, you really wrote this as a story. It yeah. is a story. Right. And yeah. the thing is, is, uh, it, this is really what happened in the dream. But I, I have to sort of create it at the time because it's a, a bunch of images. It, it, I wasn't literally writing the dream. Right. I was mm-hmm. asleep when I woke up. I had the dream and then I have to get it down. In trying to get it into the character, it's quite it's quite interesting that you can do this. Anyways, um, I sat there stunned. How could this Twitter acquaintance know all this about this hidden history, this suicidal plan, this involuntary pact, this truly tainted tontine? Now I've gone too far. Now you went, now you went a little much there. <laughs> yeah, in which all its members had only learned their fate at the hands of the deceaser doctor who himself imbibed the tainted wine. That actually happens in this story. Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, my Twitter acquaintance, Naya friend, laughed and explained morbid methodology. And as I heard his terrible words and sniffed again at the reddish residue, I realized that the island's isolated events and the ship's surgeon from long ago were less a quaint story than a repeating pattern. And at this realization dawned upon me, he laughed the final words. I heard the round rock roll back into place as I awoke to write these words. So basically, it's a cask of Amontillado story. That's Uh, really cool, Jesse. Isn't that weird? And the way you wrote it is very poesque. Really? It is You you went for the pastiche, and I think you nailed it. Well... (laughs) But that's how it was, right? Yeah, but, but the and, way you wrote it down is also in that in that sort of mode. Yes, not not only the the content of the dream, but the yeah. way you just wrote that well, is also. I like that. I like mm-hmm. that stuff as well. But it was uh, it, it's less something to be proud of as 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 it more is something to be interested in because um, I have another example of a I I don't want to make this into the how Jesse Lifetime's <laughs> podcast. But I do have another example of something that actually is derived from this story. I'm going to just dig it out here. Um, I tweeted it as well, if I can remember the title. Basically, what we did was we picked a bunch of vocab words, um, and then we write a uh, – pick six vocab words and then write a um, – uh, story, right? So I've been doing that whether I have students or not, just because I'm, it's what I do, 
right? Mm-hmm. So I, I prefer getting paid for it, but <laughs> <laughs> and so I, I also like it when students, uh, you know, are uh, doing it because they get to read theirs. And that's really fun. I, I'd like more people to do it with me. Anyways, um, so this one uh, was from four days ago. Um, and this is not a dream. This is just what I did was pick out six vocab words from the beginning of the story. Um, just weird words. And you'll hear them in the story. It's six sentences long. And you can see that even before I got, I didn't get more, I didn't get to the point where it's Poe is mentioned but it's Poe-like as well. So this one I ended up naming uh, his great-grandsire's will. Uh, Upon the death of his despised great-grandfather, the portly boy was surprised to learn he had been bestowed, there's the vocab word, the moldering ancestral estate consisting of a remote mountain fortress, a deep black lake, and and crumbling thatch roof stables. Next sentence. Yet when he visited the... When he first visited the stone citadel, there's the second word. Uh, I think I think that's from this story. Uh, the deep, still tarn and those rotting horse stalls. The ample boy was not particularly impressed with his great grandsire's wizardry. Third sentence. But the more he investigated the ancient demons, the more the boy became came to appreciate his great grandfather's antiquarian peculiarities. And antiquarian is one of the words from this story. So it was particularly poignant when, uh, says November. Oh, ah, when one November evening, I think this story is set in November, right? Uh, yeah. November. I'm pretty sure it says right near the beginning. Uh, it was a cold November. Um, anyways, uh, when one November evening, the rotund boy was plumbing the depths of the, yes, plumbing the depths of the manor's many cellars when, after sliding aside a purple velour curtain, uh, I don't think the color, is it red in the story? I don't remember. Rose, it's rose. rose. Rose, okay. A purple velour curtain. He discovered the shriveled and still swinging corpse of his great-grandfather in a magnificent <laughs> rocking chair. Next <laughs> sentence. Shocked, but no longer surprised, the seemingly faithless boy instantly kicked the old the old ancestor's body out of the chair, draped that sumptuous violet hanging about his still plush shoulders, seated himself, laughed, and rocked. (laughs) Next and last sentence. When in the spring sunshine they eventually found him in the basement of that shining citadel, the boy's body was dry and desiccated. The stables had been rebuilt, the lake lush with lively loons, and a freshly empty casket lay resplendent in an upper turret. The end. (laughs) So... Uh, actually, I seem to write better in my dreams than I do uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, limiting myself to uh, six sentences. But um, I've got a, I've got the casket from just the opening of this story, right? If you look at the original Virgil Finlay illustration, it was the golden casket of Ta Nazem, mm-hmm. right? And then Antiquarian is on the first page. Faithless is on. So having Poe on your mind. Uh, this is actually kind of a poish story, uh, the behind the curtain. But so is the one I just wrote, right? And I, I didn't know Poe was going to be in this story until I read it like eighteen times. Right? So uh, my point is, is uh, in your reading, whatever you're reading, 
gets inside of you and whatever you're doing gets inside of you. And then your dreams are that. Right. So I think that this is how this story is constructed. And the reason I think that is because most people would not construct it to be a dream at the end. I think well, that well, that I, I think that is a cliche. That it's true. But, but I think that I but, but there is a cliche. There's like, and it was all a dream is a cliche yes, is. in, in, in mm-hmm. uh, publishing. I mean, this story doesn't feel like that. I didn't feel cheated. Like, oh, and I think all- that's because it's genuinely what it is. Though the number of emotion. Uh, so w- one of the things I think uh, Terrence E. Hanley said about this story on his blog was that it feels like it was written by a woman, even though people at the time may not have, people at the time probably didn't think it was. Francis is a male name, the way it's spelled here. Um, she didn't, you know, she wasn't a famous person, so they wouldn't, wouldn't have known. And the main character is male. Mm-hmm. But if you look at, like, the way he talks about the other male in the story, he actually does the female gaze <laughs> upon yeah. him. Yeah. And, you laugh, also, that's also true, feminine yeah. and feline. Yes. And he, he sat in the woman's chair and then he asks, it, uh, 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 you know, something that he wouldn't have, the main character wouldn't have done. And then he asks, he wishes that, that he could see that, uh, that is not Santalos, the other dude, but uh, Quentin, but see, he, see himself through Santalos's, right? He says, I, I wish that his live body could be seen through. Uh, I, don't know, to, I could wish match his, his mind might have shared the lightness of his body. He could have inst- right. understood me so much better I, as I looked at him saying their graceful at ease. So, yeah, so there, I think you're right. There it's is almost a like a gay, a gay thing, right? But it's not gay because – and the, this is the other thing. is like in my dreams, sometimes I'm not in them. I don't know if this has ever happened to you. Oftentimes, it's, it's, it's I'm not r- in my own it's, dream. It's rare. I'm usually, I mean, sometimes I'll have a slight different point of view rather than a first person. I've had third person dreams, but 99.2% of the time I'm in them. I'm not dreaming about other people. I'm dreaming about something about myself or Mm-mm. an XP of myself. What's it's an like, XP? okay, I, what's that? What's an XP? Um, basically a, a copy. A, okay. a, a, a copy, but not exactly myself, but yeah, that that's supposed to be How do you me. Spell that word? Expy. Okay, I've never heard of it before. Thank it's a, a, an XP explored character is a character for one series who's unambiguously and deliberately based on a character in another older series. A few okay. minor traits, such as age or color, may change, but there's no doubt that they are almost one and the same. Ah, interesting. Yeah, okay. since I can't and, remember most of my dreams, I don't know who's in them. <laughs> Well, uh, it's very it's very hard. I had I had one this morning, which is one of the reasons I, I was late. But I couldn't I couldn't get a hold of it. It's very difficult. Uh, if 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 anything interferes with your your access to it and it is incredibly slippery, then it's gone. It just goes, and you won't get it back. You won't like it, very rarely. Like later in the day, you'll remember any part of that dream. So it, it it seems to be designed to be absolutely forgettable. And I think that's for a good reason. In the same way that when you wake up worried that you've neglected a pet or that, you know, you left a, the kettle on the stove, um, 
that memory memory of what you did would have a great harm upon your function as a being in reality if it persisted mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right like if you if you spend the rest of your day looking for your cat that you never owned <laughs> you're gonna have a lot of difficulty yeah it's maladaptive it, it, it and so it's it's important i think to factor that into why people don't remember their dreams because you spend so much time dreaming if you could remember them well uh you might want to not get up <laughs> i do i really enjoy uh you know Dreaming. I don't know that I do until I wake up and say, wow, that was a really good dream, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, I must be enjoying it while it's happening. Um, but even my nightmares are not very scary. They're more interesting. And so I, I would recommend it. Try and hold on to them and, and, you know, put them, put them down. But it's, it's, it's obviously something one can do if one practices but uh, i think it's i think it must be related to the ability to creative write as well because it's it's that free association um i put those restrictions on you know just six words um and not putting them in a good order either deliberately difficult order to make the structure flow just so that something comes out of it and it mm-hmm. usually it's silly but uh it's like the arbitrariness of dreams is it puts you in some situation and then you say, how does this, how could this work? Right. Yeah. And then, and, and then writing your way out of it. I mean, dreams are kind of like the ultimate pants, you know, plotters versus pantsers sort of writing. Right. Uh, yes. I, it's, in fact, it's, it's the ultimate pantser because you're, because you're trying to generate the dream. I mean, your your mind doesn't have an end goal necessarily mm-hmm. in mind. You're just coming along as it's going along. So you, it's like pants. It's, it's you're riding riding by the seat of your pants, and it's like, yeah. So so mm. I, I wonder if good dreamers necessarily make better pants or writers just in plot versus plot. I don't know. I, I'm I'm I've been reading. My mom's been reading it to me. The uh, first novel, unpublished until very recently of Clark Ashton Smith written when he was 14. It's called the black diamonds mm-hmm. and it is wonderful, but it's a terrible novel. It's a wonderful story, but it's a terrible novel because he doesn't know what he's doing, but his imagination is delightful and his attitude is delightful. So he's the God of his characters. And it's, it's basically, it's so much like a dungeons and dragons adventure that had no plot to start with. <laughs> Uh, just an idea, uh, you know, like I, w- I wrote about it, chapter 14 yesterday, and, you know, they had a ship battle, you know, they shot some enemy ships mast off, and they got out of the boat uh, because theirs was sinking, and rode to an island in the middle of the Indian Ocean, and they found there a, an old castle, and it's filled with rotting tapestries, and they mm-hmm. make, make another dinner, because <laughs> they're always eating <laughs> Was it chicken? And, I don't, I, I, it usually doesn't specify, um, but they, it's like the way he's timed it all out is that basically there's wrestling, (laughs) there's, there's a a mysterious letter delivered by a bird, and then somebody uh, writes a letter saying, you are now my enemy, forsworn, and then 15, 15 sentences explaining why 
uh, you know, next time I see you, I will have at you. (laughs) (laughs) And then they have a meal. (laughs) But, you know, they just found this uh, recently abandoned castle and they, you know, get some faggots and, uh, you know, wood and start uh, making dinner. And then they see, uh, they explore the castle. There's some door they have to try and knock down for some reason. No, no, I, no explanation of why they need to knock this door down. And then outside the window of the castle, they see the enemy ship pulling into the harbor. So he is just absolutely riding it by the seat of his pants. But because it's Clark Ashton Smith and he's got this wonderful imagination that, you know, later would develop into this amazing uh, skill at short story writing and poetry, just beautiful language. He doesn't show most of that, but you can feel it and he's got the right attitude. So sounds fun. Uh, it is, it is really fun. The font is too small. That's the big complaint <laughs> about this. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, so uh, my, my, I don't want to get too far away from the story, but I, this is my argument as to why it is a dream story is it's not a dream story because it was all the dream and she wanted to have a cliche. I think it was all the dream because she read a lot of Edgar Allan Poe and she had this dream. And, mm-hmm. and it turns so much on, on her own personal psychology as opposed to Poe's, which is very much uh, more revengey. You know, uh, if you guys know Poe's life, mm. he basically, he had a tough life. His parents were both actors. They both died when he was very, very young. The reason his middle name is Alan is because that's the name of his adopted family. Um, he shoved that in the middle of his name. Oh, yeah. And and then uh, when he was growing up, he was super randy. He romanced everybody around, including people in his own house um, and, you know, much older women and wrote them letters of marriage proposal and his father, his adopted father, didn't like a lot of the stuff he was doing and sort of said, you better straighten up. And he was very defiant because he was very confident in his own skills and uh, he, had, he knew what he liked. And, you know, he went to West Point and excelled there and then got kicked out. Right? It's like it, he, he was basically a troublemaker. Um, they called him the Tomahawk Poe because he was so cruel in his reviews of other people's writings. Ooh, he didn't think most man, people could literally. write at all. Yeah, literally, they called him Tomahawk Poe because of how mean he was. He made a ton of enemies. Um, was that like a school paper? <laughs> no. No. Yeah, it was the Baltimore oh, okay. Gazette, I think. Yeah, he was he was all over the place. He was in New York and he he had trouble holding a job. We don't people are speculations as to why, you know, some people think he was a alcoholic. There's some evidence of that, but I don't think it's very a lot of the things we know about Poe's life are because of his uh, executor who was his enemy. Um who he, he ruthlessly uh, made fun of, but also somehow made his executor, which is crazy. But Poe is not a normal person. And so uh, he's not, uh, I think Frances Stevens is a normal person in the sense that she, she, she's obviously extraordinarily gifted, but mm-hmm. she's also like, she 
just it was a not an extreme. She's not like a Harlan Ellison type, you know. Okay. <laughs> she was like uh, seemed to be interested in in this, but it wasn't like uh, also paired with a personality that would be a horror show. <laughs> no, like you don't really want to be hang out with Poe and be his best friend. He'd be very interesting, but he'd be very tiring. I think uh, always, you know, getting fired from jobs and being really mean to people who you just come, calm down. You know, we have to work with this guy. <laughs> yeah, but his writing sucks. <laughs> it's true. We know it sucks, but we, you know, he's, he's the son of the boss. What can we do? You know, like he, he would not be easy to get along with where I say, I think, Stevens would be very easy to get along with. And you get that as a sense of she is upset or the narrator of this story is upset by the actions that he thought he took in this dream. Right. Yes. She, I keep calling her. She, he didn't kill Beatrice, but he thought about it. He was jealous. Right. And he has, so, yeah, he's working it out through his dream. I mean, that that sort of jealousy. I mean, yeah. as you said earlier before, the whole idea of like she clearly wants to be apart from him and he doesn't want to let her go. And so he's dreaming about dealing with her and with uh, her putative lover. We don't know. We don't know if Quentin is actually I, do, do I anything. Think or, there's uh, even evidence that they're they're going to get together, but they haven't actually. Like, yeah, didn't he say yeah. like? That's what he believed. Yeah. yeah. So, and yet he's coming to visit at nine o'clock at night, but that's only in the dream, right? So, yeah. you know, and he shows up and the, like, there's lots of, there's lots of reason to be angry about this. I, I don't think anybody says, yay, my marriage failed. Right? They right. want to say, uh, you know, easy come, easy go, but it's not that easy. Right? No, it's not. Um, mm. I, I find the timing the time, of this- Oh, sorry. Go for it, Paul. I find the timing of the story interesting is when it was published. It was published in, you said, 1918? 18, yeah. 1918. So this is, I mean, it's almost, maybe the, the story would have been well known if it was published, say, in 1922. Why is that? 1922 is when King Tut's tomb was discovered. Oh, okay. So well, I, um, I think they it was were really into Egyptians uh, right, back in the it, 19th century. But he, he was the... Ups and downs. I mean, I mean, the... the I mean, there were there there have been waves of Egypt mania, and mm-hmm. I mean another Egypt wave of Egypt mania crested up again after King Tut's tomb was was found in in nineteen twenty. I mean, the, the search had already started like nineteen sixteen. I want to say I'd have mm-hmm. to, I'd have to look, but it hadn't actually been found till tw- till twenty two. So this story is almost a little premature because then after that we get things movies like The Mummy, which is all about a conflicted. With the relationship between a mummy and a woman, so it's like it's almost like this story came a little too soon for it to be remembered. If it, if it came out in that period, I think it would have had a lot more. Res- I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad it, story, but I think it did. It did get a second publication, you know, in the in the 40s, which is where we're reading it from in uh, famous Fantastic Mysteries, January 1940. Um, that's relatively unusual so it it's it, Somebody it, it's remembered a, it. yeah. And, uh yeah well the thing is is also it's a sh- it's very short right mm-hmm. so that also is a strike against it 
um, in terms of, but I think just the overall ending, even though it's subtle and I think actually a good ending because I think it's authentic, um, makes it difficult to be thought of as a more famous story. Like, um, Nephos uh, is a more conventional Lovecraft or Poe story. I, don't know. My, my, I think it, I think more... you're underestimating how good it, you know, how many reprints it's got because it, 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 obviously Francis Stevens isn't a super well-known name, right? Uh, I mean, we've done a couple it, of sto- stories by right. her, but she, you know, she she stopped right. By the way, she was 34 when this story came out, so it it's not you know the work of a youth in a certain sense. The first, uh, I think, Misa. Did I she send it to you? Yeah, yeah. she's 34. Oh, okay. Because I, I had read somewhere on Wikipedia that she only wrote for like three or four years. Yeah, so she, her stories, the bulk of her stories appear between 1923 and 1917. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I think I might have sent you both uh, the curious experience of Thomas Dunbar. Yeah, that was good. I read it. Yeah, yeah. and. You got the ending where she she has the hero called uh, Samson, right? Mm-hmm. So this is um, my I make the argument that this that story is the very first superhero story before <laughs> comics. And well, think about it; it's got That's a cool. it's got super science, right? Some uh, uh, mad scientist who's half Japanese and half American, or half Japanese and half German, um, accidentally runs over the hero. Um, instead of taking him to the hospital, takes him to his laboratory. Yes. Uh, that is, yeah. that is so comic book. Just happens, it's very, and he just so happens to be conducting unrelated experiments in the back room <laughs> with this metal that he's concentrating into something. And into, All of the metal in the whole world. Right. This a very rare metal um, that is, well, I don't know. Titanium. It's like vibranium. It's like vibranium or adamantium. Right. And then uh, through a process that's absolutely irre- irreplicable, right? Just like Spider-Man. You or, 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 like Sp- or, or like Captain America. Yeah, like Captain America. Um, he can't, uh, he, he gets zapped, all the metal goes into him, and now he has tremendous strength, right? Yeah. And then he, at the end of the Origins issue of this story, um, he says, uh, and we could even call you Samson, as in the historic or mythological figure who has super strong strength because of his long hair? Question mark? Yeah. <laughs> in well, if he loses case, his strength, yeah, if his hair gets cut, that's how right. Samson works. In any case, she wrote that uh, when she was a teenager, mm-hmm. um, published in 1904. Uh, I, I don't know if the math works out on both no. of these things, but... Oh. It was her first, it was published under her, that was the only one published under her real name. Right. Uh, uh, under her initials. Anyways, I just thought that the, seeing those two in range, uh, she's got something. She's mm-hmm. got a real dynamism that uh, I think it, it, what's so funny about reading this story is it feels clunky at the beginning. Very clunky. Like sort of like she's moving dolls around a stage. But I think there, there's two reasons for that. One is it's a short story. It's really short. And she's got a hell of a lot of things she wants to say. And two is because it's probably from a dream. So when 
we start, it's it was after nine o'clock when the bell rang and descending to the dimly lighted hall, I opened the front door at first on the chain to be sure of my visitor. So to be sure of my visitor makes it like he's anticipating the visit. Right. And later on, we feel like this is all planned. Right. But actually, to be sure of my visitor, um, he doesn't want to have the door kicked in because somebody might come and steal all his stuff, he says. Right. Seeing as I had hoped the face of our friend Ralph Quentin, I and notice he says our friend. I know. And then you notice that so many all the way through our Beatrice all the way through. That's right. It's very, very interesting. It is. But it throws you off at first. Right. All these things are throwing you off. Ralph Quentin. I took off the chain and he entered with a blast of sharp November air for company. Uh Now, uh, if you know Poe. And, you know, The Raven, his most famous work, um, I think it's somewhere near the beginning. It goes, uh, it was in late November. Yeah. It might be December, but I'm pretty sure it was November. And each, uh, and then he says something like, um, and each purple curtain flowing, right? So there are so many things going on in here that are actually from Poe. That it's uh, all it's, it's, it's December. I distinctly remember it was in the bleak December. Bleak December. When a separate dying ember yeah. wrought its ghost it upon, upon the, the floor. floor. Right? Uh, and notice in this story, he actually has said, and in the dream he did, burn something. The, the mummy. The mummy, exactly. The mummy. Yeah. I, I had to, and then he says, I had to throw my weight upon the door. To close it against the wind. Now, this is actually something that happens many times in uh, The Raven. First thing he opens is the front door of the story because he heard a knocking at the yeah. door. Oh. Then he throws open the window. right? And then the bird comes in. And why is it coming in? Because of the storm without, he thinks. And again, he's in the countryside. There's a storm blowing. He can barely get the door closed. He says, I had to throw my weight upon the door to close it against the wind. As he removed his hat and cloak, he laughed good-humoredly. What is he laughing at? You're very cautious, Santalos. I thought you were about to demand a password before admitting me. Very interesting way of putting it. A very weird thing to say. It was well to be cautious, I retorted. This house stands somewhat alone, and thieves are everywhere. Mm-hmm. This I is love full of time. import, right? We don't know that, that first time we read it. I but... know, but the second time, that's why right? I like, guess yeah. it seemed kind of clunky the first time, but the second time, Very it much. just flowed because mm-hmm. of all of that. It would require a of considerable muscle to make off with some of your treasures. Mm-hmm. That stone tomb thing, for instance. What do you call it? The Beni Hassan sarcophagus. Yes. But what of the gilded inner case and what of the woman it contains? Yeah. <laughs> what? They're right into it. This is very interesting. A thief of judgment and intelligence might covet that treasure and strive to deprive me on it of it. Don't you agree? <laughs> All, it's very much it's noir. so good. Yeah. It's so good. He only laughed again and counterfeited a shudder. So he's faking. Uh, but he's also cold. The woman, don't remind me that such a brown, shriveled, mummy horror was ever a woman. 
And then there's this weird relationship that he has with the mummy, right? He mm-hmm. says, I spent too much time with my antiquities, so I'm selling everything. And then there's this repeated line about how, how, uh, it's, he says, uh, t- tear jars and tombstones. Mm-hmm. I was looking up tear jars and they probably were not for tears, but <laughs> they're tiny. Um, they're like scented oils or something, but in any case, it makes me. There's there's a meme on on the internet where uh, some angry or laughing looking guy is drinking a cup and it says tears on it. <laughs> <laughs> and you send that to somebody who's like crying about something. You say liberal tears or whatever it says on the inside. Um, very cute. Uh, so there's he's 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 making light of his antiquities by calling them tear jars and tombstones. Um, but then if you think of that relationship that he's having to, to these antiquities and neglecting his wife, mm-hmm. that's um, actually another Poe story. It's the oval portrait where this artist spends so much time painting, uh, painting his wife exactly as she is that he doesn't realize that his painting is drawing the life out of her and yeah. she dies final stroke right yeah right so she, our our heroine beatrice whose name is not insignificant by the way um is actually trying to escape this bad relationship as far as i can tell she's not a dishonest person anywhere in the story right she's not like uh, you know, I'm cheating on my husband and we're going to take yeah. his money. Right? She just wants to have it quits. Mm-hmm. Because our Santos is a bad husband in some sense. Right? Now, he says, my friend settled himself on the frail little chair that stood before my wife's dressing table. It was the kind of chair that women love and most men loathe. It's a weird thing to say. But Quentin, for all his weight and stature, had a touch of the feminine about him, or perhaps of the feline. Mm-hmm. Like a cat, again, makes me think of Poe, black cat. Well, he moved to el- Egypt. Absolutely. He was blonde and tall with fine, regular features, a ready laugh, and, a, and the clean charm of youth about him. Also, its occasional blundering candor. As I looked at him sitting there, graceful, the female gaze, right? I wished that his mind might have shared the litheness of his body. He could have understood me so much better. Why does he want to be understood? <laughs> it's weird, right? Yeah. I have indeed found a place for my collections, I observed, seating myself nearby. In fact, with a single exception, the Tanazem sarcophagus the entire lot is going to the dealers so this is the part of the story where we're like this is kind of weird and then we're realizing he's killed his wife at some point in the story he's killed his wife dressed her up shown it right dressed her up in the costume of of the mummy Mm -hmm. even in the wrappings of it he's transferred his affection for this antiquity and this princess from long ago this songstress from thousands of years back and put his wife in that place. Yeah. Weird. Very weird. Very dreamlike. But also it's the breaking her up in a, in a thing. Now 
where is Beatrice during the story? We're told she goes on a, a sea cruise, right? <laughs> yeah. Which is a lie, we think. Uh, but that's another Poe story. Um, there's one called, it's a great story. It's called The Oblong Box. <laughs> I, when I first read this story, I was like, why is it called The Oblong Box? And then I'm like, oh, it's a coffin. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, in, in, sarcophagus, yeah. That's right. And in in that one, um, the story ends with somebody using, I think, just like in the end of uh, Herman Melville's Moby Dick, the coffin is a flotation device, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which is, uh, it's, it's really interesting. This story is full of stuff. It is. So where do you think Beatrice is then? She's not on the cruise. So where is she? She's just sleeping in the other room. She's in her boudoir, isn't she? Notice they have separate bedrooms. They have separate bedrooms. Yeah. Is she not in her boudoir? Well, I don't know. Yeah. Might be, but but we there's no. Maybe she left him already. We don't know. We don't know. We don't know. Um, I, I got to ask, though, what the hell's going on with this? What's behind the curtain? <laughs> well, that's what does the, the curtain mean? The, curtain. the door? What is the curtain? Yeah. What is right? it? Is it, is, it the, is it the dream? Is it the space between life and death? What is yes. it? It's those things, for sure. And there's actually a number of doors, right? There's the first mm-hmm. door um, where he enters the house, and then they go up to the bedroom. And then behind the bedroom... Uh, uh, in the bedroom, there's this rosy curtain of velour. Is it velour? I keep thinking it's velour. Uh, curtain. I don't and think then, so. It's lighter than that. Okay. Yeah. But it, it, it's it's constantly billowing. It is a heavy velour curtain at the far there side. It's continually oh, rippled it and billowed out like a loose rose-colored sail. Never yes. far enough, though, yeah. to show what was behind it. Yeah, that's the important part is... is is there's this thing blowing and it, and they comment on it and say, well, must be a door behind there, huh? <laughs> because yeah. it, be, this house is very drafty, but there must be a door behind it. Uh, here it is. As he spoke, he walked across the room. His hand was on the curtain, but before it could be drawn aside, my voice checked him. Quentin, I said, are you quite strong enough to close that door? Like, this is so metaphorical. What What is this mm-hmm. about, right? Yeah. Looking back at me, chin on shoulder, that's a very, again, female gaze thing for some reason, his face appeared scarcely familiar. Again, very dreamlike. So drawn was it in lines of bewilderment and a half suspicion. What do you mean? You are very odd tonight. <laughs> is it? Is the door so heavy then? What door is it? Yeah. I made no reply. As if against the owner's will, his eyes fled mine. He turned and hastily pushed aside the heavy drapery. Behind it, my wife's bedroom lay dark and cold, with windows open to the invading winds. This, again, is um, Poe. Most people have probably heard of Annabelle Mm -hmm. which is a great poem by Poe. But uh, there's another one that uh, the title eludes me. I'll dig it up. Uh, That is basically a... Uh, this image. Uh, I'll dig it out here. You guys talk talk some stuff while I dig out <laughs> the poem. Uh, oh. 
Well, so yeah, so while he while he digs it up, I I really like I really like the the narrative descriptors. I mean, I talked to Paul about that continually rippled and billowed out like a loose rose colored sail. It's very it's a very evocative language. I mean, Jesse's gone over with that paragraph about the the touch of the feminine about him, or perhaps the feline. She really mm-hmm. likes to hit hit that sort of. I mean, it's this short story is really like you feel like you're in that sort of. You're in that room. You're with them. It's not. It's not people talking in a white roomed yeah. white room space. There's actual. There's, there's actual heft to the things. It's like, or even just to, to how things do. Like he could not even cross the room to stop my laughter, but the first step stumbled, fell, and a very little while lay at the foot of the gilded case. You can just mm. see that in yeah, your mind. Yeah, gilded case. That was. I. I was. That really struck me too. Gilded case. Gilded cage. Yes, mm. gilded cage. Yes, that's yeah. That's a yeah. very good. I, I mean, Beatrice is in that gilded cage, and in a sense, as a prisoner of his own thoughts and his fears, our narrator is also in a gilded cage of his own making. I mean, mm-hmm. Santalos is trapped by these thoughts that I mean, he's thank the dream. Thank God it was a lie, but he's still having the dreams and the thoughts all the same. He can't escape them. It's a gilded mm. cage. He might have this fantasy yeah. of dealing with Quentin and with his wife, but it's a repulsive fantasy, but he's still trapped within those thoughts. Well, but he, like, Beatrice came and asked him to let her go. Mm-hmm. What did he say? I, I think he said e- yes. Or he he's, killed her. I'm still, I'm still not sure that he didn't kill her. Um, well, I'm pretty. If he did, he's forgotten. I think. You are too lovely, Beatrice. I said, and my father was a Spaniard. You shall have your freedom. <laughs> and that sounds. Yeah, There's you some, shall have your freedom doesn't sound exactly reassuring in some ways. The father's friend sent the wine, right? It's almost like here's the knife to kill her, right? Yeah. And he used the way. Again, this is a very female story. Um. If you look at the numbers, how how women kill versus how men kill, uh, it still bears up, even though it sounds like a cliche. Women don't tend to kill with uh, guns and less with knives. They tend to kill with poison. Yeah. Um, and so our hero here is he kills not only the enemy with poison, but himself, which right. is really you know, again, self-destructive. But Mur- yeah, murder-suicide. It's a murder-suicide, um, but it, it's a kind of, uh, we. I will get revenge by taking us both down. Right? But he said, at some point, he says, none of us are going to survive this night. Mm. It's beautiful. <laughs> so I, I've got uh, I've got the name of that poem, and of course, it's obvious. It's uh, The Sleeper. <laughs> ah. This poem, it's uh, three big stanzas. So I'm going to uh, read this one to you. Um, what's amazing, I'm pretty sure this is the one, um, is that if you read it very closely, like I, I tend to do because I love it so much, um, is that it's a story, not just a description. Um, basically, if you remember Annabelle Lee, there's a he, – it's a crazy man who lives – by the tomb by the sea of his Annabelle Lee. Mm-hmm. And like in um, – uh, who's that uh, poet who wrote the big frosty <laughs> ship book? Fr- big frosty ship poem um, <laughs> with the uh, the bird you're not supposed to kill. He kills it with a crossbow. Oh, the seagull. Yeah, it's not a seagull. 
It's one of those big birds, though. See, it makes you birds. Albatross. 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 What's Thank that you. poem? Oh, that's uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner. mariner. That's the one, mm-hmm. right? So, rhyme like in the rhyme of the ancient mariner. There's a framing device um, in Annabelle E, and uh, in and in the rhyme of the ancient mariner, um, a strange traveler says, "Hold," and says, "I have a story to tell you." And the the narrator for the poem is like, "I, I got a wedding to go to, man. Just let let me let me go." And the other two people in the wedding party keep going. And he stopped and has to listen to this story. That's the way Annabelle Lee is set up, too. Um, you're walking down the highway, and there's some crazy guy comes out of the tomb. And he says, hey, let me tell you about me and my Annabelle Lee. And you're like, what? <laughs> Who are you? And basically, he says, it's a story of necrophilia. <laughs> and it's like, whoa, dude, calm down. Dude. Can I get out of here within my life, you know? Um, so that's actually kind of what we've got in The Sleeper. Basically, there's uh, a dude like Romeo outside of a house, um, and inside is Juliet, um, and she's maybe dead or maybe she's asleep. Um, but the parents and or the family don't really want this crazy nut job hanging out with their daughter in either case. Um, so th- that's how I think of how you need to frame this in your heads. Oh. Uh, here, I'm going to read it for you. Okay. This Sleeper by Edgar Allan Poe. At midnight in the month of June, I stand beneath the mystic moon. An opiate vapor, dewy dim, exhales from out her golden rim. And softly dripping drop by drop upon the quiet mountaintop, steals drowsily and musically into the universal valley. The rosemary nods upon the grave. The lilies loll upon the wave. Wrapping the mist about its breast, the ruin molders into rest. Looking like Lethe, see the lake. A conscious slumber seems to take, and would not for the world awake. All beauty sleeps, and lo, where lies with casement open to the skies, Irene and her destinies. O lady, right, can it be right, this lattice open to the night? The bodiless airs, a wizard route, flit through thy chamber in and out, and wave the curtain canopy so fitfully, so fearfully, above the closed and fringed lid, neath which thy slumbering soul lies hid, that o'er the floor and down the wall, like ghosts that shadows rise and fall, O lady dear, hast thou no fear? Why and what art thou dreaming here? Sure thou art come o'er far-off seas, a wonder to our garden trees. Strange is thy pallor, strange thy dress, stranger thy glorious length of tress, and this all solemn silentness. The lady sleeps. O may her sleep, which is enduring, so be deep. Soft may the worms about her creep. This bed being changed for one more holy, this room for one more melancholy, I pray to God that she may lie forever with unclosed eye. My love, she sleeps. Oh, may her sleep as it is lasting so be deep. Heaven have her in its sacred keep. Far in the forest dim and old for her many, for her may some tall tomb unfold. Some tomb that oft hath flung its black and wing-like panels. Those are uh, curtains. Fluttering Mm -hmm. back triumphant o'er the crested palls 
of her grand family funerals. Some sepulchre remote alone against whose portal she hath thrown in childhood many an idle stone. Some vault out whose sounding door she ne'er shall force an echo more. No thrill to think, poor child of sin, it was the dead who groaned within. So the last little bit there is really, really beautiful. Um, I mean, it's all beautiful sound devices, but the story is really amazing. I'm just going to read that last bit again, and I'll explain it. Because uh, it's not it's super hard to understand, right? It sounds beautiful, but what actually is physically happening is very hard to understand. So he says, uh, where's this? Okay. Far in the forest, dim and old, for her may some tall tomb unfold. Some tomb that oft flung its black and wing-like panels fluttering back triumphant o'er the crested palls of her grand family funerals so she's rich her family gives her a big funeral he wants to have her in a nice tomb because she's dead she deserves it some sepulcher remote alone against whose portal she has thrown against the door she has thrown in childhood many an idle stone when she was a little girl she would go to a tomb out in the forest and pick up a rock and throw the rock to hear the echo that's from within. And she would say, that's a ghost. Right? <laughs> he wants her a tomb for, like that one when she was in childhood. Against whose portal she had thrown in childhood many an idle stone. Some vault from out whose sounding door she ne'er shall force an echo more. Nor to think, poor child of sin, it was the dead who groaned within. So... It's about the horror of your loved one being dead and sort of not getting the respect you think she deserves from her family or in-laws or your in-laws, I guess. I I, I think that's just sort of what we've got here. What is he? If Beatrice is to die, what should happen to her? She should be given the most grand tomb imaginable, Mm -hmm. right? And... And so he's going to give her the princesses, basically, the mummy's tomb, right? Mm-hmm. And then, of course, the only thing to do for him is to kill himself, to be with her, kind of. And, right? So, it, yeah, is she dead? I, I, I would well, tend to think not, but he definitely was thinking about it. <laughs> well, okay, I'm going to go one. I'm gonna, I, I, I know that that's like the really underlog. <laughs> stand to take she's not she's dead okay so she's probably not dead but i'm just gonna just go this one more try yep. um what if my father's jealous blood should someday betray me drive me to the insane destruction of her i held most dear and sacred now question who is that, yeah which who one is he talking about? most yeah. dear and sacred right is it the mummy or is it his wife yes maybe <laughs> I, I don't know. I I think it's it's it, it, obvious. He's he said it plainly. He's paying way more attention to the mummy. He was. He was wife. for sure. He was for he was. So then he says, um, "Let her mate with Ralph Quinton or whom she would." Ta Ta Nazim must rest secure in her gilded house of death. My brown, perfect, shriveled princess of the Nile. Mm-hmm. Destroyed, mm. rent to brown, aromatic shreds, burned, destroyed, and her beautiful coffin case desecrated as I had seen it in my vision. Mm. Not in my vision as I had seen it. He's saying he's looking at that right now. 
mm-hmm. as I had seen it in my vision. So mm-hmm. did he do that? If he did that. He was prepping. Okay. <laughs> he's not a prepper. Well, he's prepping for the murder. He's making the hole, uh, getting the jewels already to, to wine. So... I, I, it's so good. I want to uh, read this is on page 41 of the uh, PDF. Um, this is the, the language that gets really great. Just the description, the love that he has for this antiquities and the room and everything. This starts um, on the last call. First column, last paragraph. Oh, second to last paragraph. And erect in the doorway uncovered stood an ancient gilded coffin case. It was the golden casket of Tanazem, but its occupant was more beautiful than the poor shriveled songstress of Nam. <laughs> Bound across her bosom were the strange quaint jewels which had been found in the sarcophagus. Tanazem's amulets, heads of Hathor and Horus, the sacred eye, the Uraeus, even the heavy dull green scarab, the amulet of purity of the heart. There they rested upon the bosom of her who had been the mistress of my house. Now Beatrice, the Ozarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry. Um, so I, I forgot to mention Beatrice. Um, y'all know the reference that that's probably pointing to? As in Dante Alighieri's Beatrice. That's right. Oh, okay. In the Inferno, he goes down into hell to get her, which right. is awesome. Very poey. Very poey. Um, beneath them, her white, stiff body was enwrapped in the same crackling, dry brown linen bands, impregnated with the gums and resins of an, of embalmers dead these many thousands of years, which had been about the body of Tanazem. Above the white translucence of her brow appeared the winged disc, emblem of Ra, the twining golden bodies of its supporting Uray. Uray? Its cobras of Egypt were lost in the dusk of her hair, whose soft fineness yet lived and would live so much longer than the flesh of any of us three. Now, this is actually, again, um, this is very subtle. And it's kind of hard to notice unless you're like reading this stuff over and over, like I seem to be obsessing to do. Um, did you notice in this poem I read, uh, The Sleeper, what he says about her hair? I'm going to read it again. It's from the second paragraph, uh, second stanza near mm-hmm. the bottom. Sure thou art come o'er far off seas, a wonder to our garden trees. Strange is thy pallor. Well, that's because she's dead. She's white, right? Yeah. Pale. Strange thy dress. That's because she's wearing a funeral dress. <laughs> Stranger thy glorious length of dress. So this is the idea that after you die, your hair keeps growing. <laughs> Actually, it's it doesn't keep growing. What happens is your skin tends to shrink. And so you actually have more hair exposed is the idea. Um, that's the theory anyways. Now, in the cask of Amontillado there is a very interesting growth that happens. Now, in here, I don't think the growth is of her hair, but rather it is the billowing of the, of the, um, of the curtain, uh, the titular curtain, um, that is used as the same totem as is in the story of the Casca of Amontillado. When they're in the Casca of Amontillado, they're traveling underneath the house, uh, perhaps underneath a river. It's so long, the catacombs, where they store both the wine and the dead bodies of the family, the ancient family. Um, he points to 
uh, sort of as a distraction and also to us as the reader, uh, a distraction to Fortunato and uh, and uh, pointing it out to us as the reader that the nighter it grows. Now, this stuff, you're probably not super familiar with it, but nitre is uh, potassium. Potassium uh, nitrate is a component in gunpowder. Yeah, potassium nitrate. It's basically um, when you have water running through the earth, it picks up uh, this stuff and makes growth. Um, it, it it looks like uh, basically roots or branches. Um, and it's like a crystalline structure that grows inside of caves or in underground stuff. And uh, he points that out um, probably in, this is Poe pointing it out, probably because it is an indication of growth in death because it's caused by death and it's not alive, but it's growth is caused by the more dead things there are. Um, it's also a product of, of um, bird poo. But but uh, as a kind of alchemical idea, it's actually a symbol of uh, growth, like crystalline growth, um, which is very similar to the idea of getting life from from things that are not alive. Anyways, uh, so here uh, the curtain is used in that same way as a sort of totem of, do you notice the curtain? It blows, basically. I'll just keep reading here. Um I guess I had kept my word and given to Beatrice all that had been Tanazems. Even so, if they get divorced, he's going to have to give her some of the half the estate, right? Um, uh, and given Beatrice all that had been Tanazems, even to the sarcophagus itself. For in my will, it was written that she had been placed in it for final burial. Well, isn't that kind of her? She doesn't <laughs> seem to want that, but. <laughs> Uh, like the fool he was, Quentin stood there staring at the unclosed frozen eyes. This is a motif that Poe uses again and again. He's right to do so because it's beautiful. Um, he says, uh, nothing shall for, oh, it's in Dreamland, I think, by Poe. says, there the king hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid. <laughs> mm-hmm. The fringed lid is your eye, right? Your uh-huh. eyelashes. So there the king hath forbid the uplifting of the fringed lid. Here he's, he uses the, or Francis Stevens uses unclosed and frozen eyes, right, uh, is sort of a acknowledgement of this. Of my be, uh, like the fool that he was, Quentin stood there staring at the unclosed frozen eyes of my Beatrice and his, stood till that which had been in the wine began to make itself felt. He faced me then with no with so surpri- with so absurd and childish a look of surprise that despite the courtesy due a guest, I laughed and laughed. <laughs> I t- <laughs> I too felt warning throes. Oh, this is great, but to me the pain was no more than a gauge, a measure of his suffering, a stimulus to the point uh, to point the phrases in which I had told him all I knew and had guessed of him and Beatrice and thus drive home the jest. Um, this is uh, another line from Casca of Amontillado. Um, it's a joke, right? He's As he's breaking him up, you're, you're joking with me. And he, of course, is dressed in motley, 
Um, that is, he's wearing a jester, a jester sort of costume. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Multiple colors, right? And bells on his head, maybe. But I had never thought that a man of Quentin's youth and strength could die so easily. Beatrice, frail though she was, had taken longer to die. He could not even cross the room to stop my laughter. But at the first step, stumbled, fell, and in a very little while lay at the foot of the gilded case. All, after all, he was not so strong as I. Beatrice had seen, that's a really interesting sentence, Beatrice had seen. Her still cold eyes saw all. Mm-hmm. How he lay there. And this is also kind of a little bit of Romeo and Juliet where they kill He's- each other accidentally <laughs> when she thinks he's dead she wants to kill himself and when she just took a drug or or, or pyramus and thisbe and pyramus has found thisbe's cloak and thinks that uh, the wine is eaten her so pyramus mm. kills, kills kills himself and then thisbe comes and finds pyramus dead and so she kills herself and right and, sadness. and it didn't all have to be that way it's a tragedy no, no it's a tragedy <laughs> how he lay there his fine lithe body again Contorted, worthless for any use. Interesting. Till its any substance should, yep, should have been cast again in the melting pot of dissolution. This is almost Lovecraftian here. While I, who had, a drunk, had drunk the same draft, suffered the same pangs, yet stood and found breath for mockery. So I poured myself another glass of that good Cordovan wine, and I raised it to both of them and drained it, laughing. Quentin, I cried. You asked what door, though you, though you, your thought was that you had passed that way before and feared that I guessed your knowledge. But there are doors and doors, dear. <laughs> now, that door is like you passed it through her window to get to her while I was in the house because she has a separate bedroom. Yeah. Right. There are doors and doors, dear. Charming friend. Again, very strange for a dude to talk this way. And one that is heavier than any other. Close it if you can. Close it now in my face, who otherwise will follow, even whither you have gone. The heavy, heavy door of the Osiris, keeper of the house of death. Thus I dreamed. (laughs) So, very, very cool story, I think. Mm-hmm. So many la- so many layers that Castellia so- House doesn't know what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. I got I got um uh some more notes from Connor here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says basically Santalos is pretty much a reasonable person or a re- a reasonable person. He hasn't been slighted. He has. Hasn't been slighted. Yes, his wife wants to leave him, but he also acknowledges that his wife and her lover are waiting until after Beatrice and Santalos divorce to consummate their affair, apparently out of respect for him. Uh, the use of the dream motif is pretty clever because we get all the juicy horror elements of a revenge murder without actual plot being committed. Instead, we see how a reasonable person would deal with the situation. Exactly. That's what I'm saying, right? I think Poe's the same way, except he, he took it out in words as well. Like he's literally mean to people with his writing sucks, dude. Here's what you did wrong. I'm going to write a whole essay about how to write better. <laughs> To, to just to show you why your writing sucks so hard. Uh, the title behind the curtain and the centerpiece of the Egyptian sarcophagus all remind me of a magician's act. Interesting. 
It's like a whole dream is a magic trick. And at the end, the curtain is pulled back and reveals that all is well. Well, not all well, is my adding addition yeah, there. It's, yeah, it's definitely not all well. No. The stage assistant has not been sawn in half, but is standing whole behind the curtain. Santalos did not commit a crime, and he recognizes that it would be wrong, the wrong thing to do. But the magic trick is that it appeared to use that which he had uh, but the magic trick is that it appeared to use that he had for the most of the story. Okay, that doesn't make as much sense. Um, and then he says uh, there is a comparison between Beatrice and the dead princess, the mummy. Absolutely. The live princess is unpredictable and cannot be caged. Very interesting. But the dead princess is an unchanging object caged in the sarcophagus. Ultimately, Centalos prefers the dead princess. Yeah, that I think that, is a very good point. That's the person he can control. Well, I mean, <laughs> he can't do much with her, but he he can project all his stuff onto her without all her desires, wants. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He can, he can yeah. make her into what he wants her to be, and she she's not a animate person to have autonomy of her own. Which right. is really twisted like, if you say, think about I, it. Yeah. I don't. I don't want to go see that movie. I want to see this movie. But I thought you were the kind of person who loved the movies that I loved. No, no, I hate those. <laughs> oh damn it! What have I done in marrying you? <laughs> like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, whereas he can sit and watch whatever movies are on TV with uh, his mummy bride. Yep. <laughs> it's ridiculous, um, but also awesome. <laughs> I love how nobody here in this story has a job. <laughs> they're all, re- they're all yeah. just independent wealthy yeah. rich, with no, rich with no day job yeah rich with no day job they have a, a house in the in the forest full of antiquities from egypt why not oh, Go for i thought it. he was some sort of egyptologist or something well obviously an amateur but you you know if you were take your stuff home to work with you uh you <laughs> that's know, true <laughs> I, don't, I don't know I I I think it's a dream that she she had, probably based on something going on in her own life, as is so much, and all those all those stories she's reading. Um, I'm really excited about another magazine. You know, she only got one story published in Weird Tales. Um, it, I think it's might have been the first issue. It was very early in Weird Tales' run. It's called Sunfire, which I have not read yet. I'm kind of getting scared that I'm going to run out of Francis Stevens to read. But, <laughs> there were, um, yeah, she needed to write way more. Oh, it's alas. Yeah, alas. I was actually alas. tweeting. Uh, I guess you guys saw that about how she had three stories uh, to go in a magazine she'd sold them to called the Thrill Book, and then the Thrill Book even teased the next one that was going to come out. And then it folded, the magazine folded, and one of those got reprinted in Weird Tales, or got printed in Weird Tales, that's Sunfire. And then there is another one that we don't know about the title of, as far as I can tell. Um, And then there's a third one, which is actually previewed, that one's called Impulse, and it was set to run probably in the next issue of the Thrill book, uh, which ended in 1919. And it was... um, it was set in the Society Islands of the South Pacific. And they would just have a couple of descriptions of, like, what it's like. Uh, and almost nothing, you know, 
very it's half a sentence description of what how how much we will enjoy this story that's upcoming and why we should buy the next issue of the magazine and it is completely gone i mean i know that from other stories she wrote that she was into uh pacific stories um there's one called uh friend island it's a yeah and given our funny. given our readings of things like uh melville that's a real shame mm-hmm. i would love to have read it and see oh, yeah, what she really loves with that setting mm-hmm. yeah Possible Maybe. it'll turn up uh, sometime in the next couple hundred years, but um, at the time, you know, if you sent a your the magazines would say, you know, if you send us stuff, we can't guarantee, so make sure you that we will return it to you. Sometimes it gets lost in the mail, so make sure you keep a copy. Uh, you know, it's not like sending out an email, right? No. You have the original. It's it's one it's sometimes you know. They wrote it on by hand, or they type it up, and they have a carbon maybe, and the carbon gets misplaced, and and that's that, and that's, and that's, that's it. The, one, the story's that's gone. The one, that's the one copy. It's crazy. Yeah, it is crazy, and and yet we know it probably would have been really good because everything I read of hers has been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Not always the most, you know, tight, uh, but her, her descriptions and her. Yeah, uh, really evocative ideas Super and evocation. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. Point of she's view. got a yeah. real style uh, and a real. Uh, she's got stuff to say, which is super cool. There is a uh, big introduction in a, a book out there that I was reading from, and I, I can't remember. I think it's a collection called Unseen, Unfeared, which is another of her stories, um, and that that got a lot of useful information out of that very long introduction it's on google books so you can read the introduction about her yeah um and you know there's a there's also uh i've noticed recently a photo floating around online of what she looked like Mm -hmm. but i i I can't seem to find the source for that so it might not be the right person you know we know what poe looks like pretty much because we have a few photos there's like i think 12 photos of lovecraft but She's. I've only seen one of her, and I don't know where they're getting. It doesn't attribute the source. So, did they say? Did they say in what you read why she stopped? Um, it's it's a little unclear. She um she seemed to have had some falling out with her kid. I I read Uh, that too. Uh, she left her she left her kid and went to California. And that's yeah. the extent of what I read. It's not clear to me. We don't, uh, I don't know. I, no, I, it was mostly about her, where she got published and stuff like that. Okay. And, uh, so no biography. You know, doing it, very, very little. I mean, we don't, there are alternative dates, dates for her birth and death. Um, mm-hmm. They thought that she was dead a lot earlier and then they found that she was maybe alive quite later, but she, yeah, she, she was not, she doesn't have a body of output that's big enough. Really. There's, uh, maybe, maybe one, she changed her name again. It's possible that I, I, I did actually go searching for, uh, variations on her name, RM Burroughs. Um, but with women, it's hard, uh, they're when they're changing their last names and maybe mm-hmm. they're not using their, you know, Looking up Lovecraft's really easy because his name is relatively unusual. Yeah. But looking up, uh, like, the number of Stevens, Francis Stevens, yeah. there's tons of them. Yeah. Tons and tons and tons of them. 
and that's not her real name either, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. uh, it's it's possible there are other stories out there. I don't think we have quite the technology yet to, to answer a lot determine of questions. This. Yeah, because um, like, but it, it it's it's so interesting all the time. You know, new stuff gets scanned. We actually find out a little bit more. Just yesterday, super interesting. I think it was 1948, uh, newspaper in Washington, D.C., forms a book club. It's mentioned of, you know, they formed a book club, and this is the these are the officers, and they named it The Outsiders. This is Washington, D.C.-based readership, right? They called it The Outsiders. They named it after the story by H.P. Lovecraft. First order of business of the group, I tweeted is um is to write a stern letter to the government uh requesting that a particular magazine not be banned so that they don't have to travel to the next uh i guess to maryland or something to buy it they're talking about weird tales really? weird tales was banned in washington dc it was uh, censored uh, they have to be talking about weird tales because that's the only magazine that would fit the bill at the time the thrill book is is just before Weird Tales. It ends in 1919. And it, it, it that's where a lot of this Stevens is published, Argosy and All Story and Weird Tales and and the, and the Thrill Book. And they they had bought the majority of her stuff. It was, uh, its tagline was different stories. So back then, you know, everybody had their genre. Uh, it's like almost like a television channel, you know, the, I don't know, romance, history, the mm-hmm. railroad channel, right? And there was a magazine called The Thrill Book, which was about unique, uh, no, sorry, uh, different stories, as in stories that don't fit in the other genres. Later on, Weird Tales comes out in 1922, 23. They call it the unique magazine, and it was all the stories that don't fit in the other genres. So writers who are writing for formulas like Western magazines or hero magazines or crime magazines, they all have genres, but they're also writing just stories that they're interested in. Those misfits, the weird to- stories, eventually are created because there are so many of these stories that are good stories, but don't fit in these other genres. And the thrill book is kind of like that. That's why Francis Stevens fits it. This isn't a science fiction story. It's not even a fantasy story, is it? Mm-mm. Right? It's it's a dream story and really it's a post story. It's a horror story, but it's not like it doesn't fit. That's yeah. why it's, it's cool. And why, why we dig it because it's not following a particular set of tropes. It's uh, sort of got a purity there that we, I think really feel. Boy, we talked about this for a long time, huh? <laughs> yeah. Surprising for a 22 minute story. Right. That's why that's why I like I like Francis Stevens. This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF Audio. Thank <laughs> you.